Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Welcome to Geopolitics Decanted. I'm Dimitri Perovich, Chairman of Silverado Policy Accelerator, a geopolitics think tank in Washington, D.C. Today, my guest is Teddy Collins, who recently left the White House, where he was Assistant Director for Technology Strategy with a focus on intersection of AI and national security. Prior to that, he worked at Google's DeepMind AI division as a research scientist. He also co-wrote a terrific New York Times bestseller book with General Stan McChrystal, Teams of Teams, which examined the restructuring of JSOC, Joint Special Operations Command, during the fight against Al-Qaeda in Iraq. Welcome to the show, Teddy. Thanks so much. It's, uh, it's an honor to be here. So, Teddy, I have a confession to make. I've been a pretty big AI skeptic for the last 20 years. And in part, that's been due to my actual work in machine learning. I supervised a large team over the course of my career of data scientists working on supervised and unsupervised machine learning algorithms. And I certainly saw the potential of those technologies, but I didn't see it as a revolutionary change that it's clearly now becoming. I saw the challenges that we were facing with training data, with overfitting, with imbalance in in classes that you were trying to classify. And it it was certainly helpful in augmenting humans, in increasing efficacy. My work was mostly in the cybersecurity area using machine learning. But there are challenges with false positives, challenges with misses, challenges with identifying things that it had not seen before. And yet, when I look at the evolution of AI, particularly in the last five years, something truly dramatic has occurred. And as someone who has been focused on this area, as, as you have over the course of the last 10 years, tell our audience what you think has changed so radically and why we're seeing these really dramatic improvements in these systems. Yeah, so um, as, as you note, even for people like yourself who um, have worked in depth with machine learning tools, I think that the rate at which things have improved uh, in the past few years has, has been quite remarkable. And I think that if you look at uh, surveys of people at time T, their predictions of where things would be at time T plus two years or T plus five years tend to be incredibly noisy, independent of how much expertise they have in this space. So one takeaway is just that these things are contingent and very, very difficult to predict. There are lots of things that in retrospect we can point to. The main ones are that uh, machine learning in particular thrives and, and especially the architectures that have been responsible for LLMs and some of the sort of biggest headline results um, since around 2020 uh, thrives when you give it a lot of data and can run very large models for many cycles. And those are things that uh, the second two of those three things depend largely on access to compute. So what people will point to often is they'll say, we have way more data than we used to. We have much more computational power than we used to. And we also have more and more people, it's sort of a flag, we were more and more people go into it. Sometimes people will call this, including our mutual friend Ben Buchanan, will call this the AI triad of talent slash algorithms, data, and compute. Those things have all changed significantly over the past decade. And there is a sort of rich get richer effect where the more data and the more compute, the more money there is to be made and interesting research problems there are to be found by going into this. So that attracts more people, which in turn attracts more funding. 
And I think what we've seen since the sort of mid 2010s has been that that has, has really taken off. Some major figures in the machine learning space identified some of these fundamental drivers, in particular on the compute side, uh, quite early. So people who had been working on this stuff since the 80s, uh, some of them in the sort of late 2000s, early 2010s said, now seems to be the time when these algorithms, which long had latent promise, can actually realize those gains. And as a result, they made very good bets by putting a lot of brain power and money into these projects. Uh, but one big takeaway is just that, honestly, this stuff is like really, really difficult to predict. And anyone who says that they know exactly what these systems will be capable of in 2025 is probably oversimplifying. When was the time that you personally were looking at a particular milestone you said, this is remarkably different fr from the past? A lot of people sort of look at evolution of AI and, and particularly in the media that tend to jump to the case of Gary Kasparov, the world champion in chess at the time in 1996, being defeated by Deep Blue. And I, to be honest with you, I was never that impressed by that accomplishment because it was not necessarily an accomplishment of AI, but they had loaded an enormous chess database into Deep Blue. You know, human mind can only remember so many games and so many variants. And Kasparov was at a huge disadvantage just from a memory perspective if not at a compute perspective back then. So I didn't necessarily think that that was a, a fair accomplishment of, of an AI system back then. But when did you think this is really dramatically different from what we saw in the, in the past? Yeah, so um, the first I'll just say on the, on the Kasparov story, it, it is quite interesting because uh, your analysis is very similar to what my former boss, Dennis Hassabis, who, who runs DeepMind, um, has said uh, about Deep Blue as well, which is that in many ways, it was more a testament to the sort of knowledge of the programmers who created it um, than it was to the power of AI, because this was sort of a, you know, the old fashioned way of producing AI, which is you um, load it with uh, a whole bunch of rules, and then you brute force a lot of outcomes. And that sort of enables it to, in some senses, overwhelm the human opponent. And that is one type of accomplishment, but it doesn't generalize as elegantly as machine learning does. And I actually had the opportunity to meet Kasparov because he came to DeepMind when I was there. And he himself has written a book that describes sort of the old paradigm of AI and the new paradigm of machine learning driven AI, a very different in a number of ways. Uh, so a sort of something that's comparable to um, uh, Deep Blue, but in the ML space would be AlphaGo, which played Go, which is a sort of much more computationally complex game. And Gary Kasparov actually wrote a book that explicitly compares the capabilities that underlie that and why those generalize much more effectively to the capabilities uh, that underlie Deep Blue. Um, I will say personally, I will actually point to something that is an incredibly vanilla, now very old by machine learning standards result. But this was one of the first things that sort of instilled in me the, the beauty of some of these systems, which uh, you'll be familiar with it's called word to vec and this is something that sort of is the um precursor of a lot of today's language models it is a very very simple neural network system you're essentially following a training procedure that's similar to today's llms which is that you are trying to predict the missing word in a sentence in this case there's no fancy attentional layer you're just using a feed forward network to try to guess based on the corresponding sort of the surrounding window of words, what the missing word is, or vice versa, depending on the setup. And one thing that's really lovely about that is that you end up producing as a byproduct these vectors that represent each word. And those vectors, it turns out, capture an incredible amount of semantic meaning, and they can complete these analogies. So the famous one is that 
king minus man plus woman equals queen. You have these vectors in this usually 200 to 300 dimensional space. And it turns out that even though the system was not instructed to do this, it learned that the best way to predict what words would go in these slots was to stratify the semantic space in a way that we also find informative and that in fact can solve these puzzles that for a long time we would have thought and I would have thought that requires almost human level linguistic intelligence in order to do. But it turns out it, it just kind of tumbles out of these relatively simple systems. Um, that was one of the first things that I saw that really made me think um, that this was sort of an alien type of knowledge and programming compared to what we used to classifying as things that, that computers can do and cannot do. What do you think was the biggest contributor to these dramatic successes that we've seen over the last 10 years? Is it the availability of computing? We've certainly thrown billions of dollars of GPUs, graphic processor units, at this problem. Or has it been some dramatic evolution in these algorithms? Certainly there's been some progress there, the invention of the transformer algorithms in these neural networks by, by Google. They published in 2017. But it personally, it doesn't strike me as that revolutionary in terms of some, some groundbreaking discovery. There are some optimizations in some of these algorithms. Many of them have been known for many decades. I mean, neural networks have existed since, what, the, the 1960s, right? So what do you think was the key contributor to see such dramatic results as we're seeing with ChatGPT and all these other systems that are popping up? It's very difficult to, uh, this can be classic evasive response. It's very difficult to pin it down to one thing. It's like lots of different things that sort of coincided at once. Um, I will say computational power and the discovery that that alone was enough to move the needle in a number of domains made a very, very big difference. And um, it also, there are a couple of sort of fortuitous things there. So people discovered that GPUs, which for a long time were used primarily for gaming, um, actually lended themselves really, really nicely to training neural networks, which is sort of almost a coincidence in some way that like the same set of mathematical operations that you want to do when you're you're rendering lots of polygons at once are very, very similar to the mathematical operations that you want to do when you are training um, and using for inference uh, neural nets. So there are a lot of sort of things there that I think are, are culturally happenstones. Definitely the computational power is a big piece of it. I, I think it's also, uh, I mean, it's always hard to assign credit in retrospect, but I think to some extent, um, it's difficult to know if we'd be where we are today inevitably just because of these technical drivers, or if a lot of that hinged on um, a handful of organizations and individuals that really decided to place big bets in this area. And a number of those bets really paid off. So we can look at DeepMind with uh, AlphaGo and AlphaZero and AlphaFold. We can look at OpenAI with the GPT series. Um, after those organizations, probably you would have had significant progress. I, it's hard to say as a fraction of what we have today how high it would be. So let's talk about the implications of all of this. So certainly, it's fun to play around with ChatGPT and ask it questions and have it write in the style of Shakespeare. But where do you see, in terms of practical uses the biggest benefits of this type of technology going forward? In what areas of industry or science do you think the implications are going to be the most profound? There are a lot of areas of scientific discovery where AI could produce quite profound breakthroughs. We've already seen some of these things. So I mentioned AlphaFold earlier. A lot of listeners may be familiar, but essentially the problem of going from an amino acid sequence to knowing the shape that the corresponding protein takes is a very, very difficult one. 
and one that is very, very useful in terms of informing all manner of down-the-road science and application, in particular with things like drug discovery. And that was something that scientists struggled with for a long time. And it turns out, as the AlphaFold and AlphaFold2 results reflect, that it is quite amenable to machine learning. There are all kinds of other fundamental scientific problems around, for instance, uh, the design of new materials in material science, uh, the control of tokamaks for nuclear fusion, uh, lots of things, as well as the, the modeling of complex systems that are relevant to areas like climate change, where there's sort of more parsimonious closed form formalisms that people have used previously can clearly only capture a small sort of proportion of the variance in a space. Those are all areas where AI could shed a significant amount of light on how these things work, how to control them, and as a result, how to build tools that do things that we want. Um, so there are many areas of science where this is relevant. Obviously, to make it a little bit more concrete, there are all kinds of areas in our daily lives. I mean, people are, are learning this with chat GPT now, um, that we can imagine these systems uh, helping us, uh, automating things, taking work off of our plates. That, in turn, raises all kinds of ethical questions about employment and existential risk and so on. But I, I won't dive into that just yet. So... I know you said predictions in the space are really hard, but I'm going to push you on a prediction. In in 10 years, do you think that there's certain tasks that we do today that will become largely obsolete? You know, for example, in, in the space that I'm very familiar with, computer science, there are predictions that computer programming may get replaced by AI because you're already seeing ChatGPT write some really impressive code and you can see where this is heading and there are companies that are working to basically become autopilots, if you will, and, and help you develop code very, very rapidly. Are there areas like this where you think that our world is just going to be vastly different in 10 years? Yeah. So uh, again, with all the requisite caveats that uh, it's predictions are hard, uh, I will say, yeah, if I, if I today personally had to place some bets, I think there are many things that will look very, very different, including all of the things that you listed. Um, so as anyone who's used chat GPT will know, there are all manner of things uh, that we used to think of as generative, intellectual, human-specific activities that in fact we would have framed as the exact opposite of what machines could do. Um, and now chat GPT and other tools like it are very, very good at this stuff. That includes writing a natural language and generating code. Uh, and you can imagine by extension, as people are learning how to plug these things into all sorts of APIs, that it could handle all kinds of other processes that right now require humans and machines interfacing in some way. And we spend large chunks of our day doing stuff like that. So we spend some time just writing with words. People spend some time writing just with code. But then we spend a great amount of time, for instance, booking meetings by looking at and comparing calendars or trying to decide on travel plans, which involves coordinating with lots of different people and pulling up three windows next to each other and trying to do these sort of Tetris-like activities that technology has brought us a bunch of the information for, but the last mile problem is, is still hard. Across a number of those areas of everything from like deep creative activity to personal life admin, I think that these systems could offload a significant proportion uh, and things that take up a lot of our days today. It's not clear to me that that um, that that the implications of that will be what we may initially assume. And the reason for that is if we look at historical technological change, often when you have new systems that can automate something, 
it pushes us to reconceptualize what that task actually is and to draw new boundaries around what it entails and what it doesn't entail. So I expect that workflows will look very, very, very different. I expect that that will largely be because for a bunch of these types of things, AI systems will handle them. But I don't think it will be as simple as the chunks that we think of now, whether those are projects or hours in the day or something like that, I don't think it will be as simple as chunking those things and discreetly handing them off to an AI system. I think it will be some kind of weird symbiosis that if we looked at it today would make no sense to us, but that people will kind of ease into and will feel quite natural. And in what areas do you think that AI has been overhyped in terms of its ability to to drive change in the near term? You know, one thing that I've been fairly skeptical of is self-driving, right? It seems like we're much further away from being able to do uh, self-driving within complicated city environments and so forth. Do you agree with that? Uh, or do you think that even there we'll see major progress soon? On self-driving specifically, um, I agree with your statement that uh, there was a period of hype that ended up uh, being overly active about self-driving. Um LLMs that, that do pure text won't be much use for that. That said, these models can lend themselves quite nicely to sort of multimodal applications. And it's easy to imagine that if you get something that has the same sort of transformer-based architecture, uh, but um, both ingests and produces more multimodal output, it might help with sort of imbuing these systems with common sense. And that could be one of the pieces of the puzzle to um, improve self-driving capabilities. More broadly, though, I think that the... The, your identification of self-driving is something that is part of this bigger category of things, which is like sort of making what people sometimes call the sim to real jump. So going from simulation to reality. And that is often very hard, mainly because testing in the real world is slow and expensive. And something that has been a big piece of why these models have gotten so good is that they learn very slowly in the sense of how many episodes it takes for them to absorb something relative to humans. So your typical machine learning system will have to do something, you know, perhaps millions or tens of millions of times when a human might be able to learn the same skill from doing something a handful of times. And when you're operating in the purely digital space, that is doable. And as chips have gotten much faster and as we've had architectures like transformers that have enabled us to parallelize more of that, it means that in real time, we can do that quite quickly. But it's still a case that sort of in simulation time or in terms of number of experiences these machines have, they are clocking a huge amount of trial and error. As soon as you introduce to that something that actually has to bridge into the real world, it gets much, much harder. And that can be done. So I mentioned earlier the control of plasma and tokamaks. That's something that, that has been tested in the real world. Obviously, self-driving people have poured loads of money into um, and there are things that, that uh, you know, I think you're quite interested in in the sort of military space in terms of UAVs and so forth. So it's not that it's impossible, but it does make it much, much more expensive, especially if you add to that all of the like ethical regulatory concerns that come with something as weighty as self-driving. I think that even if we have the technical capabilities, we will rightfully be very, very hesitant to roll those things out in a circumstance where they could um, harm real humans. So you mentioned military capabilities. There's been a lot written on how AI may transform combat and drive more adoptions of unmanned vehicles in air, sea, or, or land. And uh, there, there's been some recent dramatic developments, although, as you mentioned, they're in the sim space, not necessarily in the real world, where fighter aircraft driven by AI have performed spectacularly in simulations against humans 
and did things that humans would never do, like fly straight at you and use guns to to neutralize the threat in front of them. That's something that's incredibly dangerous and humans try to avoid because of risk of collisions and, and really, you know, millisecond response times that are required to to avoid striking another jet. AI obviously has much more granular control of of, of the plane and, and is much more confident, I guess, in, in its ability to to avoid a collision. And as a result, is taking risks that humans typically wouldn't take. But that's a simulation. Right, and if you start putting that into reality and put it in an F thirty five, suddenly you're messing with a jet that's worth tens of millions of dollars, and a mistake becomes very, very costly. Particularly since mistakes in AI seem to be very confusing sometimes. Where ninety nine percent of the time the machine does something truly incredible and profound, and one percent of the time it just does something incredibly dumb that a human would never do. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, sometimes these failures can be both difficult to predict and, after the fact, very difficult to diagnose. And they can go really off the rails very quickly. So so uh, for all of those reasons and more, uh, indeed, experimenting with something like an F-35 is a very uh, expensive proposition. So are you hopeful that we will crack the sim to reality problem in the near future, or is this going to take many years, perhaps decades, for us to really get comfort in these systems operating in the real world, particularly when lives could be at stake, whether in the military context, whether it's in the self-driving context, and even if statistically they might be better than humans when they're doing really dumb things and you can't explain it, people's faith in the systems will be shaken, right? Yeah, absolutely. We've we've certainly seen that already with self-driving cars. Um, now, there has been lots of progress in sim to real so in controlled robotics environments in particular, it's a, like a very active space of research. There's also been some cool research on using, um, essentially a lot of this uh, hinges on how good your simulation is. And there has been some cool research on using machine learning itself to generate lower cost, higher fidelity simulations. So you're learning in a learned simulator. Um, that said, yeah, I don't think that, I think, I do not think that the sim to real gap will be in any definitive or general purpose way uh, solved in the near future. I mean, you know, people, maybe this is a huge mistake to, to make this prediction. Um, but reality is just very, very, there are lots of good physics simulators, but at some point, it's it's really, really hard to make sure that, for instance, every single actuator in your device is captioned with the requisite level of fidelity in these simulations. And AI agents are exceptionally good at exploiting the tiny differences between those simulations and reality, because often it's in those gaps that they can most effectively accomplish the objective that they've been given. And so all of this makes it quite tricky. To You can have a simulation that's 99.99% accurate, uh, and it will still be the case that you'll get a surprisingly high error rate when you try to transfer to reality, because that 0.01% will account for a disproportionate share, often, of the strategies that the AI lands on. Let me ask you this. As you mentioned, computers been an incredible, an incredibly powerful component of the dramatic evolutions in the capabilities of the systems over the last 10 years. We went from basically on an order of magnitude level, $0 being spent on compute for AI to billions of dollars being spent now, a, a truly exponential growth. But there's a limit to that, right? We, we can't get to trillions of dollars being spent because there's not enough money in the world and no one has those types of resources and there are real limitations in terms of availability of GPUs 
in these cloud environments to train these models. So are we about to hit a wall in terms of how fast these systems are going to evolve in the coming years? Personally, I I mean, again, difficult to make predictions, but um, I doubt that that will be the determinative factor. Um, and one way of thinking about this would be that when you're at a technical frontier, there are, you have several degrees of freedom. And the question, if you're, say, running an AI lab and trying to unlock a certain level of performance is... Um, which of those is the most resource-efficient way of pushing forward the frontier? And to date, compute has been that, even though the models have gotten very expensive, um, because it would have been possibly even more expensive to get together all of the talent that you would need in order to develop, let's say, a more data-efficient algorithmic approach to tackling a certain problem. As the costs of increasing compute rise so significantly, the incentive on the margin to put that money into other areas of research and engineering go up. We've already seen that the models that we have today, most of the time, are being trained in fairly compute inefficient ways. So there was a paper from DeepMind that sort of pointed out that the, essentially the ratio between the number of tokens that you give it and the number of cycles that you run it that people had used for a long time uh, was very far short of optimal. We have an, a better and better understanding of these theoretical properties but almost certainly, there is still a huge gap between how efficiently one could train a model of a given size and how efficiently we're training those models now. Then there's also the gap between how much inductive bias can you build into this model. And bias is usually a bad word, but in this case, inductive bias is actually helpful because it's saying how much human knowledge can we preload a model with so that it doesn't have to learn everything from scratch. To date, that's been very hard to do. And so the approach that a lot of labs have taken has been just throw it on the computer, the problem. There's a great essay by sort of one of the godfathers of reinforcement learning, Rich Sutton, called The Bitter Lesson, which describes how lots of scientists 20 years ago, if you told them that by today we had all these capabilities, they'd say, that's amazing. That means you must have solved all of these fundamental problems in computer science and cognitive science and neuroscience. And instead, they'd be very disappointed to hear, no, 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 we just threw way more compute at this problem. That doesn't mean that that other approach wouldn't have worked. It just meant that it didn't seem to be the most cost-efficient approach over the past couple of years. I expect that now that things are getting so pricey, and I think there's still some some room for the really well-resourced actors to spend more money on it. But I, I suspect that as things get pricier, um, you will see more and more resourcing being funneled into these other methods of moving forward the frontier. So do you think then that, I mean, if you look at the winners so far in this space, it's largely been these big tech companies that could afford to spend enormous amounts of money throwing this compute at the problem, whether it's Google and DeepMind, whether it's OpenAI backed by Microsoft, Facebook's research in this space, and now Amazon jumping in. Very few other companies could afford to spend those types of resources and, and don't have access to, to that level of compute. And if you're correct that compute will become perhaps a little bit less relevant going forward as we're going to be focusing more on the optimizations of these algorithms, do you think it'll create opportunities for smaller players to jump in and make a lot of progress? Or do you think that large amounts of compute are still a necessary component that is basically your entrance ticket to this game? If I had to guess for the near future, I expect that large amounts of compute are necessary but not sufficient, and that we will still see huge budgets being funneled towards that. It will just be the case that instead of rising by, let's say, an order of magnitude each year for the biggest models, they rise by 
less than that, but they stay at least where they are. And then that is combined with uh, exploring other methods of improving training efficiency. However, as sort of the history of economies of scale in different areas has shown, uh, often it is the case that a new entrant comes out of nowhere with some totally new approach. And people have, over the years, hypothesized all kinds of more radical approaches to um, AI, building AI capabilities. So it's certainly possible that something could come out of the blue with a totally different approach uh, where the difference between having $10,000 and a billion dollars is almost negligible. Uh, human ingenuity knows no bounds. Uh, so that is feasible. But if I had to guess in the near future, I, I, I would say that... Um, I think that probably the biggest, most general cutting edge models will remain very, very expensive to train. And what about the training data limitations? I mean, we've sort of had a free-for-all over the last 10 years where people were training models on all sorts of data, open AI, sort of crawling all of the internet and being able to do plugins into different proprietary data sets with some of these generative creative models, whether it's imagery or music or videos, you're able to train on lots of data that frankly, is someone's IP that is out there, but they didn't necessarily license. You're starting to see some backlash, particularly from the creative community around that, basically saying, well, it's great if your AI is creating music, but if it's based on training data of my music collection, you got to pay me royalties, right? And that's going to get really, really expensive very, very fast. And as sort of you see people building moats around their data and saying, oh, no, 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 you're not going to get my training data to make your models better. Do you think that there is going to be some natural slowdown of AI evolution because of that as well? The training data questions raise all kinds of interesting quandaries indeed around things like IP and how can we ensure that um, the people who create information that's on the internet or that's using these training data sets um, are compensated fairly. Uh, from a technical perspective, some people have voiced concerns that as these models get bigger, they will just sort of run out of a suitable volume of data. And indeed, as you know, if something, if the amount of data actually goes down because of, for instance, legal restrictions, or because these companies aren't able to come to an agreement with the creative professionals who produce a lot of this um, content, then that could further contribute to that. My personal guess is that as with computation, there is clearly a huge gap between where we are now from an efficiency perspective and where we could be. Again, we can use humans as sort of a flaw on how data efficient something could be. Humans can learn, uh, let's say, to identify new types of objects or learn new skills with very, very, very few examples. And we are many orders of magnitude away from that. In theory, in the limit, systems should be able to get at least as efficient as humans, possibly more so. Um, and that suggests to me that some of the concerns that people have voiced that like there isn't enough data on the internet to train the models that we'll be developing in, let's say, two years time, five years time. Um, although I see how one can get to that by just sort of extrapolating the curves to date. Again, like compute, it seems to me that uh, there are enough other degrees of freedom at the frontier that that probably won't be the thing that dooms AI progress. What about the risks that the training data will get skewed. So right now, these models are trained on mostly human-generated data, right, by crawling the internet, what have you. You're rapidly having these applications like ChatGPT start generating its own data that is becoming public out there and that it's inevitably going to start getting trained on. 
So is that going to, you think, introduce some major biases into the system where now it's sort of trained on itself and it's going to take it into a certain direction because of the you know differences in that data from the human-generated data that perhaps it has been trained on before? I think as with many things in AI training, this is a potential pitfall, but also if it's priced in, it's sort of a potential opportunity and it, it doesn't need to doom progress. So there are lots of issues with data and there are many well-documented issues in particular, um, you know, setting aside this question of how quickly can systems progress. There are lots of well-documented issues around algorithmic bias creeping in because people didn't curate their data sets properly, among other problems. It's uh, a data problem, also an algorithms problem. And um, this is the kind of area where if things are done in an unthinking way, and it's easy to do that or easy to do that with machine learning often because uh, the systems are less interpretable than the way that, that sort of conventional coding works. If this is done in an unthinking way, um, which also often happens because the organizations that typically build and train these models are like not representative of the global public, um, then you can easily end up with pretty horrific outcomes. And anything that involves the kind of recursion that you're describing where the model outputs data that sort of inadvertently ends up getting piped back in um, as any programmer will know, your recursion can be great, but if you don't know exactly what you're doing, it can also lead to all kinds of death spirals. And these are some of the scenarios, uh, not this training situation per se, but recursion you know, produces some of the scenarios that most worry people in the like AI risk community. So with that as like a very broad preamble, I would say um, it is indeed something that can cause problems if uh, it is not, if an awareness of this is not built into the training regimen. However, there are also a lot of interesting results that show that perhaps counterintuitively, doing stuff like, for instance, model distillation, which involves broadly speaking, having one model train another model, a bigger model train a smaller model, um, or having models do some data filtering as part of, and, and data augmentation to like generate synthetic data as part of a training process can often actually improve outcomes as opposed to worsening them. And so to die back to this overall synthesis that it, it, it could be a problem, but it could also be an opportunity. Um, I think it is the sort of thing that, yes, if we just end up throwing loads of this stuff on the internet and then unthinkingly saying, oh, let's train this next model on whatever is on the internet today, uh, we could end up in trouble. But uh, I don't think that that is inevitable. I'll be remiss not to ask you, given your background and particularly the book that you wrote with General McChrystal on organizational dynamics, of what you think the implications of AI might be for that space of how we organize ourselves in communities and teams. Do you think AI has any implications for that space at all? Uh, yes, I, I'm so glad that you asked this question because this is sort of one of, one of my nerdiest areas of deep enthusiasm. Uh, I think it has many implications. I'll highlight sort of two levels at, at which it come into play. The first is what we might think of as traditional organizational structure, design, and management. And the second is actually even higher level, which is sort of the societal. So from an org structure and design perspective, there is a, an, an excellent paper that I was just reading by Jeff Ding and Alan Defoe that talks about comparing AI to electrification in terms of military history. And um, it looks at the fact that in the early days of electrification, people expected, they realized this was a big technology, and they expected that it would have a major impact on military power. But what they anticipated was much more concrete and tactical and tool-focused than what ended up manifesting. People worried about weapons that would fire electric beams. And that ended up being fairly negligible. 
but what ended up being huge was the way that electrification affected all manner of organizational and infrastructure capabilities uh, within militaries. And so that includes, you know, communication and power and just having the ability to turn on lights easily at all times of day. I mean, things that we don't even think about today, but that was a big deal. There is a comparable logistics, obviously logistics. Exactly. It's a, it makes a huge difference for logistics. Um, there's a comparable paper that looks at this. It's called the Dynamo and the Computer um, that looks at this in terms of the impact on on factory design. And you know, you got economic gains not from swapping out an old turbine for a new electrical motor, but by redesigning the factory, bearing in mind that you can do all of this nifty modularization with the motor. And the the book that I worked on with General Crystal indeed looked at um, sort of how the data analysis capabilities and communication capabilities. Um, of even just the consumer internet in the early 2000s uh, enabled totally new uh, organizational structures, which um, U.S. adversaries like AQI, Al-Qaeda in Iraq used, and which uh, Joint Special Operations Command, JSOC, under General Crystal's leadership, um, also ended up doing a big sort of organizational reshuffle to take advantage of this. So I think there are many ways that uh, AI could present similar opportunities at the moment. At the highest level, one way of thinking about a lot of what organizations do is matching between people and other resources. And so you work at an organization, you will spend a certain amount of time working with other people, let's say consuming papers, executing on particular projects, going to specific meetings, getting particular emails and so on. And at the moment, we do that matching in a largely manual way. These things are determined by whom you report to, what team you're on, whether you signed up for a given reading group, whether you said yes to a specific repeating calendar invite and so on. And those things are okay, but they're quite lossy. And as anyone who has been on both a small team and in a big organization knows, there is a huge difference in terms of how well those pairings work in those two settings. When you're on a small team, people have a high dimensional understanding of one another, and they can easily tag people in and out based on a fairly rich representation of what that person is good at, enjoys doing, wants to get better at, and so on. In a big organization, we are stuck with these relatively low dimensional representations and people will have experienced that these lead to both false positives and false negatives. You will spend a lot of time in meetings that feel like a waste of time, but you will also feel like you weren't included on things that would have been really great for you to be there. Now, some of that is, you know, political incentives and so on, but a lot of it is just that these tools are not very good at matching us with the things that we should be doing and the people who should be doing and the places that we can go. Yeah, as someone who has built a large company from from nothing, I can tell you that this problem just becomes so much harder. It seems like exponentially harder as you grow, as you get more and more people, because your ability to kind of touch every part of the organization, understand what, what it's doing, trying to marshal those resources to, to, to a particular fact gets so much harder. And that's why, you know, you have this innovation dilemma in technology space where, you know, big companies very rarely come up with something truly creative, despite having enormous capabilities in terms of talent and people but they just can't often marshal it effectively. Yeah, exactly. And if we think about uh, how much time is wasted at the individual level because of lack of information flow, misaligned incentives, that's another thing, is that we try and reduce and reduce and reduce how we define the problem as things get passed down an organizational hierarchy. And much of that we can think of as informational and computational constraints. And not all of this, but a lot of it lines up pretty well with things that we know machine learning systems are good at which is to say, building these representations of people and um, doing matching problems. I mentioned earlier this word to VEC result. Typically, in these systems, which are now pretty old school, 
and the number of dimensions you use to represent a single word will be 200 to 300. And presumably a human has at least as much semantic complexity as a single word. And yet the organizational tools that we use usually give you one dimension, maybe two. People get really excited about matrix management, which is essentially going from one dimension to two. And uh, you can imagine now historically, it just wasn't tractable to do more than that. So um, that was what we were limited to. And those systems did better than what was there before, and they enabled scaling in the industrial era and so on. But uh, anyone in the contemporary workplace knows that they are deeply frustrating and often inadequate. And we may now have the opportunity to build systems that can lead to uh, much more fruitful and productive pairings that enable increases in organizational efficacy and also like a much deeper level of personal satisfaction. There are all kinds of ways that stuff could be misused and could go off the rails and so on, but that, that would be the optimistic vision for it. There is an optimistic vision for it, but there is a potentially really huge pessimistic downside. And that is if you're correct, and this capability is going to make large organizations dramatically more efficient than they are today and potentially more innovative, what is that going to do to the startup economy? And it, we already talked about how massive amounts of compute is giving an edge to the big platform companies that have the resources and access to that compute. Are these organizational changes driven by AI going to make these companies much more competitive than they are today across a huge variety of areas in which they play and make them even more monopolistic than they are today and make it much, much harder for a new company to be born and take on these big players and succeed? Very possibly, although it may also be the case that these types of capabilities don't need to be restricted to what we would now think of as a single organization. So we see lots of enthusiasm, for instance, in various open source communities for um, building new and more productive ways of collaborating at scale. In some ways, perhaps, these capabilities would actually enable the kind of uh, large-scale distributed collaboration that, to some extent, the internet has enabled, but has been certainly rocky because of a whole bunch of, again, largely informational and computational constraints. And as a result, the best thing that we've had to organize people at scale has been well-defined organizations, whether that's a company or an NGO or a government or what happened. Uh, it may now be the case that as the barrier to that type of interaction goes down, that you can have platforms that enable people to do all kinds of large-scale projects, um, for perhaps, for instance, as a distribution of startups that are working together in a way that would have previously been difficult to define. But now that we have these high-dimensional systems, uh, we can sort of uh, shepherd along and define and manage and categorize in ways that we wouldn't previously have been able to. Let's talk about some of the dramatic concerns that you're hearing from various people about AI. You have Elon Musk talking about civilizational destruction potential because of these systems. Do you think that's overwrought? Do you, do you worry about human species disappearing because of the dramatic improvements in artificial intelligence? Or do you worry more about what bad people may do uh, with access to this power? Yeah, I think um, I think all of the above are, are very serious concerns. So um, there are all sorts of ways that AI, that capabilities that exist today, could do very very bad things. And I think that like the FLI letter highlights some of these in terms of, for instance, misinformation risks. Um, there are also ways that these systems, conventionally, people will sort of split this into 
what they call alignment failures, which is um, a system is trying to do the thing that you've requested to do, but it interprets that in some fundamentalist way that maybe in some way matches letter of what you've said, but not the spirit of what you've said. And then malicious use, which is when the system does do what its user has requested and it's just said that request is something that's very, very bad, like kill lots of people. Um, both of these are huge issues. It's hard to sort of compare them uh, from, from a magnitude perspective. I think people are right to be concerned that um, because of the interpretability issues around AI systems today, it's quite easy to see a scenario where we build something that's quite powerful and it does something that we didn't fully intend for it to do. We've seen that we've brought this upon ourselves many times with way, way, way simpler systems. Uh, it's not hard to see AI going the same way. Um, so there is good research happening in technical safety, but it's underfunded relative to all of the research that is pushing forward capabilities. I think another thing that is important to highlight here is that um, often it can be easy to think about these problems as purely technical problems, but there is a political component that is at least as significant, um, both in terms of the sort of nuts and bolts of how do existing political systems grapple with and regulate these things, but also in the more abstract sense that most of the safety work being done at the moment is being done in, I don't want to say ivory tower, because that's maybe too sort of pejorative and, and the labs do try to engage, but but the inside of an AI lab is is very rarely representative of the world that its creations might affect. And I think some of the most interesting work happening in the AI space at the moment is actually being done by groups that are trying to bridge that gap by getting a sense of representative public sentiment around what types of things we do and don't want these systems to do, which risks people take more and less seriously. This is often called sort of collective alignment, which is to say, how do we develop a representation of what a community, a country, the entire world would like to see from AI capabilities. Um, and so some of the projects I'm working on now with groups like the Collective Intelligence Project and the AI Objectives Institute are targeted at, at exactly that. I think that's a, a sort of an undervalued and very fruit, fruitful line of work. What do you make of the calls by Elon and some others that have put out this letter recently that we should have a moratorium on AI research for six months? Not clear to me what would happen in six months if you were to have this moratorium and if you could somehow enforce it globally. Well, what's your take on that? I think a lot of it comes down to um, how one defines terms around, for instance, like like what counts as, as research. Presumably, we should continue technical safety research, but I think there are um, both definitional challenges here as well as coordination challenges. So the classic, whether you want to call it a response or an excuse that um, one hears from uh, entities that are pushing forward with AI development is if they don't do it, someone else will. And that other entity will be worse for uh, reasons A, B, and C. And so there are major coordination problems here, as with other dual-use technologies, previous weapon systems, all kinds of things, where um, you can end up in a situation where maybe everyone does, in fact, think that we should slow things down, um, but they don't do it because they're worried that if they do it alone, the outcome will be worse. That's a charitable read. The non-charitable read would be like, people just want to win. Uh, but if we take them at their word, then, you know, and then this is, it's a, it's a, it's a serious or concern. Or it could be both, right? It could be both. Yeah. It could be both. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Could be both. So, so speaking of these other players that may not stop, uh, Vladimir Putin in 2017 said that the nation that leads in AI will be the ruler of the world. That was a quote. 
Do you agree with him? Do you think he got it right? There was an interesting post I read uh, a few days ago that um, pointed to previous times when we've defined something as a race, and it's ended up pretty quickly diffusing and generally to the benefit of of humanity. So sort of, you know, the electrification race uh, or the uh, personal computing race and so on. And sure, at various times, that's meant that like one country standing has been a little bit ahead of another. And it's often diffused uh, to critical military advantages during essential conflicts. Um, but we don't look back at those things now, even though they may have seemed totalizing at the time and say that locked in the dominance of this country indefinitely, even with something as decisive as nuclear weapons. Um, of course, uh, it's always possible at this time it's different. There are reasonable fundamental reasons to um, expect AI to be something that could have that lock-in value. Um, but it, it really all depends on sort of how quick the takeoff is and, and what form that takes. Uh, if history is any guide, it suggests that most of the scenarios that people typically point to um, are necessarily reductive and simplified compared to how things will actually play out. So the typical story is overnight something goes from being an entertainment gadget to being essentially, you know, God in a box. And some country has that or some company has it. Uh, and then they use that to, you know, uh, do whatever they want with <laughs> with the world. Um, and it's that's possible. But I suspect that the reality will be something that involves slow diffusion and arguments about whether this actually is AGI or not. And then some of it gets stolen and some of it gets published and some of the people who built it go to another company or go to another country. And it all ends up being very muddled. Um, now, that can be bad because it can increase escalation risks, uh, but it maybe slightly reduces the totalitarian escalation fears. AGI, of course, is artificial general intelligence, right? This hypothetical yes, capability yeah. that is going to replicate anything that a human can do. By the way, Teddy, we were talking before the show about the applications of AI to cybersecurity. And I had a conversation with my good friend Patrick Gray on this topic. He, he runs the number one podcast out there on cybersecurity called Risky Business and also helps significantly with the audio production of the show. And, and Patrick made a great point that just as you, you, you just said about the general equalizer that a lot of these technologies ultimately have in various spheres, you're going to have the same thing occur in cybersecurity where people that are arguing that it's going to make offense much better or it's going to make defense much better. Well, the reality is it's probably going to make both sides much better. And in the areas where AI may have some very immediate applications to cybersecurity, potentially in the discovery of new vulnerabilities and maybe automation of writing of exploits to exploit those vulnerabilities, Certainly, on the surface, that may help the offense, but at the same time, it's going to help defenders find those vulnerabilities and, and patch them up as well. So you're back to the current situation of a race between offense and defense, now just driven by new tools. Do, do you agree with that? Yeah, and I should should uh, clarify that I, I've only negligible familiarity with like non-AI aspects of, of cybersecurity, so, and you almost certainly... Um, especially given your, your experience um, applying NL to these specific problems, you will know much more about this than I do. But my instinct is, is to expect the same thing. What do you think is the biggest misconception, misunderstanding about AI that exists out there in the media, the general public? What do we not get right about these systems from your perspective? I think one thing that, that we all find challenging, including the people who are at the forefront of building these systems, is that we sort of have a mental model 
that was accurate until relatively recently about the kinds of things that machines were good at and bad at. And they were good at rote, repeated tasks like crunching huge numbers, and they were bad at creative things and so on. Um, and then we have this model of what humans are good at and bad at, which was often sort of, not exactly, but sort of the inverse of that. And this is famously captured in this idea, Moravec's par paradox, which is uh, Hans Moravec, um, who was a computer scientist who sort of uh, described this uh, quite concisely. And I think as a result, as we interact with AI systems now, we really want to group them in one of those two buckets. And so we want to think either it's a system that does and doesn't do the things that computers historically have done and not done, or if it proves its ability to do some of the things that we previously put in the not computer camp, then it can do all of the things that a human with those capabilities could also do. And one thing that we continue to learn about these systems is that they really are alien to us and the contours of what they can and cannot do and the ways in which they fail are unlike either pre-machine learning AI systems or humans. And I think over time, our intuitions will grow around that and we'll get a good feel for it, just like we had a feel for how machines worked more or less until recently. But I think for the time being, it's very, very challenging to figure out when to trust one of these things, how to integrate it into one's workflow, what to expect to see in the years to come, because it just, it's just alien to us. And uh, I don't think uh, this is maybe somewhat frustrating for the listener because this isn't one of those things where like people think A, but the truth is B. So I don't have a sort of easy guide for like how to conceptualize this is something that everyone is trying to develop at kind of the same time. Um, but I would say it's easy to go astray by defaulting to one of those two mental models. And the very last question, this is a geopolitics podcast after all. It seems right now that we have a massive lead over our adversaries, particularly China, in this space. We have the most innovative research, the most innovative companies. We have access to huge amounts of compute and the export controls that we're putting on chips going to China, particularly AI chips, may, may curtail their efforts. Are you comfortable? Well, first of all, do you think that that is the correct view that we are ahead today in this space? And are you comfortable with that lead being preserved as, as we move forward? Or do you worry that China may come from behind and, and, and accomplish a lot more? And you're actually seeing from a policy perspective, they're doing some things that are probably counterproductive because they're concerned about the societal implications of giving the, their population access to AI and they want to restrict it and regulate it. So they may be shooting themselves in the foot to some extent in this area as well. I agree that at the moment, in most areas of AI, and in particular in the areas that have been responsible for the most exciting recent breakthroughs, the US um, and its allies have a lead over adversaries. I wouldn't say it's huge. And I think that one takeaway from the past decade or so of progress is that paradigms can shift very, very rapidly. So a few years ago, machine learning was very exciting, but it it was largely different. It was largely grounded in these slightly more theoretical advances, these new architectures, a lot of stuff in simulation, a lot of reinforcement learning. And recently we've seen the rise of these language models, but also just other sort of like transformer-based things that are very compute heavy. Um, that's slightly different. I would say if that continues, then the types of assets that uh, the US and its allies have uh, are pretty well positioned. But A, that could change. And B, 
even the relative importance of assets sort of within that paradigm can change quite rapidly. So just to give one like historical parallel, when we were in this slightly more researchy, slightly less engineering and compute heavy paradigm of AI, research talent is less fungible, I think, than um, computational power, definitely, and also than engineering talent. And so if you have the 500, 1,000, 10,000 really best AI researchers in the world, you could make a case that that is more valuable than all of the other people who are doing AI things combined. And so even if you're willing to throw $100 billion at the problem, if you cannot interest those people in building your systems, you're out of luck. When it transitions to a paradigm that is more engineering heavy, uh, there are more engineers out there. And there's still a lot of tacit knowledge that is required to do this stuff at the very cutting edge. Um, but it doesn't take, on average, as long to train an engineer to do this stuff well as it takes to put a scientist through a top PhD program and then a postdoc and so on. And then all the way at the other end of the spectrum is uh, computational power, which is something that is now very commoditized. The recent export controls somewhat restrict that in terms of Chinese access, but it is something that in theory, if you have loads of money, you can probably figure out a way to train something at scale, even if you're not necessarily trading it on domestic facilities. So as those paradigms shift, the actors that they empower changes as well. Um, and it's easy to imagine that in the next couple of years, you could see a shift to another paradigm that improves in relative sense the fitness of actors that might include uh, U.S. adversaries. Well, Teddy, this was an absolutely fascinating discussion, an hour really well spent, hopefully for our listeners, learning about this new exciting technology with potential big downsides and huge implications for every aspect of our lives, including geopolitics. So thanks so much for coming on. 